Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, and we'll begin with... Uh, let's do... Let's see, what did we do last week? Does anyone remember? I think we did one through three. We did one through three last week? Okay. We'll do four through six this week. Four through six of uh, From God the Father, Virgin Born. And Rebecca will start us off. Abide with us, O Lord, we pray. Bible memory work, which comes from the catechism. It's uh, the table of duties to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. All right, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, 
And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Kids go off to Sunday school. Um, so this is our last uh, week to sing this hymn, which, by the way, sounds much better than when we started. So uh, you have successfully learned a new hymn. It's, it's not as hard as it sounds, right? Just sing it four times in a month and you, you kind of learn it. Um, I, I'm not don't have too much more to say about the hymn itself. I'll take it as an excuse to talk about the church here a little bit. So this is an epiphany hymn, and uh, we're moving in today. We're starting the season of pre-Lent, which is a season that is um, a little bit unique in the sense that ever since the advent of the three-year lectionary, it's not as widely celebrated, but it's kind of a nice transition uh, between Epiphany and Lent, and it can sound a little silly that, you know, Lent's a kind of preparatory season for Easter, right? So we're preparing for a preparation uh, in pre-Lent, but uh, it is what it is. But the pre-Lent Sundays are known as uh, Jesimatide, and that's because the names of the Sundays in pre-Lent as we move out of Epiphany. So Epiphany begins with the uh, Three wise men, immediately followed by the baptism of our Lord, and then ends with the transfiguration. And sometimes, depending on when Easter falls in the year, you have other Sundays in between there, before the transfiguration. But then right after transfiguration, we have this little season of the church year before we get to actual Lent called Jesimatide. And that's because the um, Jesima just means days by the way, but um, the Sundays in Lent are all Jesimas. So today we have Septuagesima, and then we'll have Sexagesima, and then we'll have Quinquagesima. And uh, this is actually just the beginning of our countdown to Easter. So these uh, Septua, Sexa, and Quinqua just means, um, let's see, yeah, 70, 60, and 50 days, right? So Jesma means days. So it's uh, 70 days, 60 days, and 50 days. And that's counting down till Easter. And then what's Lent? Lent is 40 days, right? So... And the reason that they're multiples of 10 rather than 7 is because you're not counting the Sundays between now and Easter. And so it ends up roughly being multiples of 10 or something like that. I don't know. The point is uh, that's, that's where the words come from. But even more importantly than, than that is what these Sundays are about. And the propers for these Sundays or the readings for these Sundays are kind of a uniquely Lutheran thing in that um, they follow the solas of the Reformation pretty closely. 
So in Septuagesima today, we're going to talk about grace alone. And then Sexagesima is about faith alone. And Quinquagesima is about the word alone. So these are the kind of themes of the Sundays, which is very nice. So, um, And this is kind of a, I always describe it as like a back to the basics season before we get into Lent, right? So we get, uh, we go back to our roots, back to our basics before we uh, enter into the discipline of Lent. So it's, uh, I wrote it in green um, just because that's the marker I grabbed, but it is actually a season of green as well. Some people do purple, so there's a there's kind of debate within the liturgy nerds of Lutheranism that I don't really partake in. I just do what other people tell me is the right thing to do, but um, about whether it should be green or purple season, but that doesn't really matter. Um, I just do green because I think it's kind of nice to distinguish between Epiphany and then Epiphany's got a lot of white in it, and then you do green for Jesmatide and then purple for Lent. So, um, Anyway, that's the season of the church year that we're in, and then we'll be into Lent uh, here pretty quickly. Uh, this is one year where it only happens you know, every couple decades or something, uh, where Ash Wednesday falls on Valentine's Day this year. So um, February 14th will be uh, Ash Wednesday this year. Also my father-in-law's birthday. So fun fact. Um, all right. So that's the, uh, I'll pick a Lent hymn probably for the February hymn of the month. No, I know what the hymn of the month is already. Um, we're going to be doing not all the blood of beasts to go along with our Hebrews study for the Lent midweeks. So, uh, that'll be our hymn of the month. Maybe, well, maybe I'll do that in March. I don't know. No, I'll do a Holy Week hymn in March, probably, or an Easter hymn. We'll see. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll probably be Not All the Blood of Beasts this next month will be our... And that's a very easy, easy hymn. You probably know it. Even if you don't think you know it, you probably know it. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Catechism-wise, well, we have the verse for children. Well, the children all went to Sunday school, so... Um, no, notice the, there in that verse... Uh, Paul specifically points out that that this is the first commandment with a promise, right? That you would live well and enjoy long life on the earth and that things may go well with you. And it is absolutely true, right, that when children obey what their parents say, the whole household is just a happier place, right? It's a better place to be. And this is always an, an important thing that we recognize that following God's law on this earth does bring blessing. Right, conforming ourselves to the way that the world is designed by its creator does have a bringing of blessing to it. Now, that doesn't mean there won't also be suffering, right? And we have to always make sure we say the caveat that we're not talking about the prosperity gospel, right? We're not saying you're going to get rich if you follow God's law, but there is a blessing in conforming your life around God's word. Right, and so um, this happens with the fourth commandment. It also happens with the other commandments. All right, let's jump into Ezekiel's temple. Then, with all of that said, and if we have time, we'll start on the Book of Lamentations as well. And I'll kind of tell you where we are in our long-term plan of Bible study. 
we will eventually finish the Old Testament and get into the New Testament. You know, one thing, though, you know, when you're saying, like, when you follow his commands, you know, I, I think people always think that, that you're doing well because you're getting money. But what we do a lot of other things well because of who follows his plan. Right. Yeah. No, that's definitely true. Um, there's been a lot of studies that have shown that happiness does not correlate to the amount of money someone has. So there's a lot of millionaires out there who are not very happy people, right? Um, and as the yeah, there, there's like um, it is obviously true that people are not happy if they can't pay their bills, right? Generally speaking, um, that there's a level of stress that comes with that. But um, basically, once someone can pay their bills and there's food on the table, after that point. There's no correlation between money and and happiness. So that's a good point that the prosperity gospel is flawed not only in its theology but even in its presupposition that things going well means earthly riches, right? Because that's not like that's not even true just from a scientific or uh, sociological perspective yeah um all right ezekiel's temple that's where we are okay so this is just review i wrote some review points up here from last week when we look at the uh temple vision of ezekiel i should probably write down the chapters here that's 40 through 48 he spends eight chapters. This is the most magnificent and clearly one of the most important, just by its length, passages in Ezekiel. Um, some of the major themes that you want to be on the lookout for to kind of understand what's going on here in this vision where Ezekiel is taking a tour of the temple is uh, are, are these points, right? So equality, balance, and levels of glory – um, that one of the things that you can notice whenever it's going through all these details about these things were 10 feet long or 10 cubits long and by 10 cubits long, and they were opposite these other things that were 10 cubits long by 10 cubits long, those types of passages. Um, there's a lot in this temple. Uh, I, was, I still forgot to print them out. There's... Um, if, if you have a study Bible or you can just Google it, I'm sure, you can find kind of diagrams that diagram out in a visual way what Ezekiel says here of his temple, um, which is, is kind of helpful just to see all the symmetry and balance right, that there is. So this is um, supposed to show God's perfection, right, because as we'll see as we, we also talked about last week, this is using Old Testament temple language to describe a New Testament reality, right? There's some things that are clearly not realistic architecturally here, right? Um, and like when we look at the the water that's running out of the temple, it's not like a realistic uh, water feature within, a, within an architectural design, right? Um, this is clearly a heavenly reality. It's a heavenly vision that Ezekiel is seeing. But um, when we see that that heavenly vision of the temple is 
equal and balanced and symmetrical, we're, we're seeing a reflection of God in that, right? All right, then multiples of 10, which uh, kind of goes along with that. We talked about that last week. Just talked about the Old Testament language, New Testament reality. Um, one of the points we made is that Ezekiel spends eight chapters, nine chapters on this temple. And that shows us, and, and we've seen this every time in the Old Testament we've come across anything about the temple, that liturgy and architecture matters to God, right? That worship of God was has never meant to have been something that's like just totally casual or whatever you want it to be. Like, yes, there's a sense in which you know, sometimes I think this verse is abused where two or three are gathered there. I am with you also like that has to do with the fellowship of saints. It doesn't really have to do with architecture. Right. Um, yeah. And yes, certainly it's true that, um, you know, in in a, a you know, what what's the. What's the example that's always used here? Like in uh, World War One, they were in the what were they in the trenches, right? And the in the in trench warfare, if there are two or three Christians gathered there, yes, certainly you can have church within a trench, right? And that's not a beautiful architectural building, but that doesn't necessarily take away from this question of what's the ideal that we should reach for when it comes to worship and liturgy, right? Um, and of course, the the key factor there is reverence. That even in a even in a trench warfare situation, you still want to have reverence for what's going on if you're worshiping the Lord, right? As much as you're able to, as much as you're able to. So um, that's reverence is what matters. But you can see the fact that Ezekiel spends nine chapters on this. It's pretty daygum important, right, as this vision of heaven. Okay. Then uh, finally, uh, better than Eden, that this heavenly temple is even better than in some ways than what Genesis uh, 1 and 2 presented as far as the Edenic paradise, right? And if you compare Genesis and Revelation, you can see this as well, that um, there is an increase in the abundance and an increase in the beauty and an increase in the materials from what was originally given in Eden. And I just had a friend actually, he, he wrote an essay on this that about the um, how in Revelation, both the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are restored. But in Revelation, we, we actually do get to partake in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? We do get to um, know the difference between good and evil, having gone through the court, like the, the history of salvation, right? Having fallen into sin and being redeemed and everything, we know the d- good and evil, right? So in fact, in Revelation, we do get to participate out of both trees, where in Eden, they only got the one tree. And there is an interesting theory, by the way. This is totally a side note. has nothing to do with Ezekiel's temple. Oh, I mean, it is connected. But um, last time I taught about Gen- uh, Genesis 3, and it was down at Oxford at the Genesis Bible study. I'm still doing down there on Thursdays. Um, 
I came across this and I've I'm slowly being convinced by it. I I don't really see why it's not want, want to be true per se, but um, when God forbade Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't a permanent prohibition. It was something that he wanted Adam and Eve to grow into before he gave it to them. It was an issue of maturity. And I, I think that might be true. Um, I could go into some of the reasons for that. Um, but one of them being this idea, right, that when we are restored and when we reach the final ultimate goal of the new heavens and the new earth, that everything is better than it was in Eden, right? And that was the goal of Eden to begin with was that Eden was going to grow, right? It had four rivers going out in every direction that, and that Adam and Eve were supposed to grow and have dominion over the whole earth. Eden was supposed to grow into something bigger and better before the fall into sin, but then the fall into sin happened. So anyway, interesting thing to think about. All right. And then uh, also reversal of the beginning of the book of Ezekiel specifically um, where the glory of the Lord had left the temple and now the glory of the Lord is back in the temple and better than ever, right? This is the idea. So, all right, let's look at some of these actual text of Ezekiel's temple. So first one we'll look at is uh, 40 verses uh, 38 to 43. 38 to 43. And this has to do with the sacrifices that were prepared. There was a chamber and its entrance by the gatepost of the gateway there were, where they washed the burnt offering. In the vestibule of the gateway were two tables on this side and two tables on that side on which to slay the burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. On the outer side of the vestibule, as one goes up to the entrance of the northern gateway, were two tables. And on the other side of the vestibule, of the gateway were two tables. Four tables were on this side and four tables on that side. By the side of the gateway, eight tables on which they slaughtered the sacrifices. There were also four tables. So four plus four is eight plus another four is 12. Of hewn stone for the burnt offering, one cubit and a half long, one cubit and a half wide, and one cubit high. On these they laid the instruments with which they slaughtered the burnt offering of the sacrifice. Inside were hooks, a handbreadth wide, fastened all around, and the flesh of the sacrifices was on the tables. Okay, so the reason I picked this um, passage was just as a highlight of kind of a way to look at some of these things in the temple, because we don't have time to go through each passage here, was that here you can see one of the most... Um, Important things, if not the central thing that happens in the tap temple, is sacrifice, right? And what, like with this point of make, using Old Testament language to describe a New Testament reality, in the original Old Testament temple, right, in the first temple, there's one altar, right? There's one altar. Here, there's 12 altars, right? 12 tables, that's what the word table means, 12 tables, uh, the altars are just the church's table, right? Twelve tables on which uh, that involve the sacrifice of the burnt offering. 
right? And that's to show, right, this is very symbolic, right? We have to um, – I think this is, this is an important thing, right? When we think about the genre of Ezekiel's temple vision, this is a apocalyptic literature, right? This is like reading Revelation. We should not take everything absolutely literally, right? Ezekiel's taken into a heavenly vision – and he, he tours around this temple. And we know for a fact, historically, this temple never existed, right? So this is a, a symbolic vision that he's having, okay? So what are these 12, what's this idea of 12, right? 12 tables. Well, the, the number 12 in the Bible signifies completeness, right? You have 12 tribes, you have 12 uh, apostles, you have 12 basketfuls left over, Um 12 of all these things. And so when you have the complete version of sacrifice in the temple, this is symbolic of the one sacrifice once for all, as Hebrews puts it. All right, this is a picture of Christ sacrifice when you have 12 tables. And um, Really, I, I want you, whenever you read through Ezekiel's temple vision, think of think of Christ everywhere you look. Right? We should always do that, of course, when we're reading the Bible. But especially here, um, there are so many messianic hints, right, given within the text. So uh, this is just one of those. Uh, I think another another thing to point out here in this. Is oh that's that's our thing I was gonna say is just that this point we had made earlier that the architecture and liturgy matters right notice how he goes into the the details he goes into right so that they uh, the tables which held the instruments for the slaughter he talks about like how wide that how big the instruments were right and so sometimes you know I've had different reactions to this uh, type of thing but normally when I've taught um, both here and at Oxford and on, on Vicarage as well, um, taught altar guild type things, right, to the altar guild and to other people as well, right? Um, and we talk about things like how the individual cups are supposed to be taken care of after the service or um, like what order things go in on the altar, right, what position they go in. I, I honestly, I'll say I think like 95% of the time, most people are like, yeah, we should we should take this seriously and we should do exactly what what the, the right thing to do is, right? And we should um, figure out the most reverent way to do these things. Sometimes people piously, not not like um, they're not like rude about it or anything, or uh, they're not they're just skeptical. People people will ask like, why does all this matter, right? Like, why does it matter, like? You know, doesn't God? God's a gracious God. Like, you know, can't we just do things like how whatever the easiest way to do things is, right? And um, I th- this is a good example, right, where we can say, well, look, maybe we don't fully understand. Like, now there are reasons why we do everything that we do when it comes to church and liturgy and altar guild and all of that. And I can go into detail about all that. But even even just say, like, 
we don't know um, exactly, in some sense, why we are always doing the things we're doing, right? Like, I and I don't, I, I don't know the details of like every little thing that was passed down to me in the liturgy are. So, for instance, um, I don't know exactly the history of bowing during the Gloria Patri. Like, I know that that's a thing that's been passed down to me that I do. I don't know exactly where it came from. Obviously, it's to show reverence to God um, because we're giving him glory when we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And then I don't know why exactly why I then, you know, I bow during that and then I stand up during as it was in the beginning is now and will be forever. I don't know why that came about in the liturgy and in church history, right? Just like I don't know why the instruments in Ezekiel's temple vision are a hand breadth wide as opposed to two hand breadths wide or something like that, right? But I do know that reverence matters, right? And that these things are important because in being careful and in being consistent and in being clear with these things, we are showing reverence, right? And so I, I think um, just to expand on that point of like why the liturgy matters, why architecture matters, is just because the Bible shows us that it does, right? That that God cares about the little details, right? And so I I've never liked this um, kind of argument when it comes to, especially when you get into the whole kind of contemporary worship versus more traditional worship debates, you get these arguments like, well, God doesn't really care, you know. Uh, he just wants you to worship with your whole heart. He just, you know, he just wants you to um, worship from your heart or whatever. Like, I don't know, that's that's really not how the Bible portrays worship, right? I mean, it, it, in a sense, yeah, of course that's part of it, right? But um, part of it is also recognizing that we're in the presence of Christ and recognizing that God cares about the little details, right? He, he just does. So um, we should give him our best in every little detail, right? Not just uh, in the kind of broader idea. So anyway, okay, enough about that. Um, uh, next passage we'll look at is 43. I don't recall it. Yeah, well, every number that you talk about in the Bible is in that deck of cards. Mm-hmm. Like the four seasons or four different seasons, and then number, a number of weeks in a year or 52, and that's how many cards are in a deck of cards. Yeah, I do know there's a lot of like interesting symbolism in, yeah, in card deck. Really, it really was, because I mean, a kid can understand that mm-hmm. a lot better than if they like to play cards or anything. It's real easy for them to learn about yeah. numbers and what they meant, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll have to think about that. (laughs) There you go. All right. So 43, 1 through 10. uh, This is about the glory of the Lord reentering the temple. So this is the uh, reversal of the beginning theme. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel. And and um, 
well, we'll see this here, but remember back to the beginning of Ezekiel, what happened, right? He was by the Kabar Canal and he saw the vision of the glory of the Lord. And we kind of drew that out, right? With the, the angels and the, the four posts and the, the, the wheels at the bottom and, and being the throne and everything. Okay. You, you all remember that some? All right. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from uh, the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces the, toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, right? So remember, he had the vision of the glory of the Lord in Babylon. And he was like, what's the glory of the Lord doing here? Because it's supposed to be in Jerusalem. And then later he had the vision of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple at Jerusalem. And now he has the this heavenly vision of the heavenly temple and the glory of the Lord is back. Okay, so that's what's going on here. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor the kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on the high places when they set their threshold by my threshold. And the doorpost by my doorpost, and a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. Okay, so there, um, again, I think we have Christ, right? This man uh, comes out of the glory of the Lord, right, in verse 6, and stands beside him and says to him, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, right? And, and uh, that's in uh, Psalm, Psalm 110, correct, when this is the Messianic psalm that's quoted most often in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, that is the God the Father, said to God the Son, because this is David, right? God, David is, Jesus is David's Lord and yet David's son. And so the Lord says to my Lord, um, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, right? So Jesus' feet rest on earth, right? This is a very common um, image in the Bible is that the, the Son who sits on the throne in heaven, his feet are resting down in earth, right? And so uh, here uh, we get this as well, that this man who comes out of the glory of the Lord, right, speaks to Ezekiel and says, this is the place of my throne, right? So the heavenly temple is the place of Christ's throne, right? This is the new heavens and the new earth. Christ will, Christ will dwell here, right? And this will be his throne, and he will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel, and he will place the soles of his feet there, right? And 
then this image that goes on is about how the, the wicked kings are all going to perish, right? The carcass of the kings are going to lay before him, which that's Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, right? That the, the, the kings of this earth, the kings of this earth plot against the Lord and against his anointed, but at the end, right, they will perish in the way unless they kiss the sun. Right? So all of these things tie together. Dang it. I lost my Psalms thing here. Okay. Anyhow. All right. So this is a this is a vision of Christ, right? This is a vision of Christ coming into his his temple. Any questions on that? All right. Uh, chapter Okay, then I just have 44 46 and 47. Um and I just want to talk about these in general. That's why I did not um, give specific verses here. But um, 44 is about the laws governing the priest. Okay. And I think this is interesting. This I, I know I'm kind of hammering on this, but I, I just find it to be one of the main things we can take from this passage is that even though this is the new heavens and the new earth, and it, it is using Old Testament language to describe that, right? So I think that's maybe the most, this point is maybe the most confusing thing about um, the book of, uh, the, the vision of Ezekiel's temple is that it uses Old Testament language like about the burnt offerings and about priests and whatnot to describe something that's in the New Testament where that's not actually going to be fully the case. But if you think about it in context, it makes sense that Ezekiel kind of has to use this language when he's prophesying to the people of Israel to describe the New Testament, right? He, he's got to use the language they're familiar with. So um, that's very similar to – like I do that in sermons all the time, right? I use kind of modern examples and modern language to describe what's going on in the Bible, right? So um, that's what Ezekiel's doing. He's using what's familiar to them in the temple to describe something that's coming in the future that's going to be different. But anyway, he gives rules uh, rules for the Levites, rules for the priest, right, about how how the priests are going to uh, administer and alter uh, administer around the altar and things like this. And um, if you read through it, one of the things you notice is that the priests um, are given more to do, right, than they, in some sense, than they were uh, in the original temple, right? That they have a, in a sense, there's like a greater glory, right? There's, it seems like there's more priests and there's more activity going on, right? Same thing with you. You go from one altar to twelve altars. Um, there's there's kind of more glory within this temple to behold, but um, I just want to point out that there is still rules for the priest, right? Part of this is within this passage is um, that that's the main part of the passage is these that there's these laws governing how the priest, how the Levites are to conduct themselves in the temple, right? And so just because this is New Testament, just because it's restoration, just because it's new heavens and new earth doesn't mean that order goes away, right? And I, um, 
you know, oftentimes when people think of heaven, right, and they think of Jesus coming again, they think of like a floaty place in the sky, right, where we're all just kind of floating around, not doing anything. And that's just biblically totally untrue, right? The new heavens and the new earth is a recreation, right? It's a better Eden. It's a recreation of this earth, right? When God said in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth, what did he create, right? He created the earth and then all the, the rest of the universe, all the stars and the sky and everything, right? And man dwells on the earth, right? So in the new heavens and the new earth, man will dwell on the new earth, right? It'll be this earth that we're standing on right now, recreated in a more glorious way, and there will still be work, right? There will be, um, before the fall into sin, for Adam and Eve, they had to tend the garden they were given to, to have dominion over the whole earth. We will also, in the new heavens, new earth, have good work to do. We won't grumble and complain about it. It'll be joyous work. We won't get sore at the end of the day, right? Um, there, it will be, we will enjoy all the work of our hands, right? Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So it will be great work, but it'll be work that we do. And um, there's, I mean, there's no reason to think in some sense, according to this passage, right, that in the temple where Christ dwells as king in the new earth, that there won't be priests working in the temple, right? There won't be kind of pastors there, right, in a sense. Um, maybe maybe there will, maybe there won't. I mean, it's hard to say. This is, like I said, it's symbolic language, right? But um, that uh, I would like, that, that would be kind of nice, right, if, if in uh, the new heavens and new earth, if I could still be a pastor of sorts, right? Um, it's like, you know, someone comes to me, There's the, the, I won't have to do any more marriage counseling, you know, um, or anything like that. <laughs> just be... Just be serving the Lord in His temple, right? But um, just be like, I'll be like the guy, like handing out, like be, basically be like a waiter at the wedding feast, right? Probably like be like, I'll be the guy handing out the 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 bread or something at the wedding feast. Um, I don't know, but I do hope it's like the Garden of Eden, and that we do have like like productive work. But yeah, I think it will be. I mean, it's like good fruit, and that you're not frustrated about it. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm. I think it. I think it absolutely will be. So, um, anyhow, but my my point to get back to my main point here is that just because it's restoration, right? Just because this is a New Testament reality, doesn't mean that there's not order, right? And that this is a mistake I think people make is that they think, oh, it's the New Testament now, nothing matters, right? It doesn't matter how we conduct ourselves, doesn't matter how we do things, it's all God's grace now, right? Old Testament God is mean and orderly. New Testament God is uh, doesn't care and is uh, makes me feel fuzzy and warm inside, right? Like, that's so overly simplistic, and that's not at all how the Bible portrays itself. For one, um, it's the same God in both Testaments, right? He doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the di- there's not a difference between what the Old Testament God cares about and the New Testament God cares about. There's a difference in how he administers it, but there's not there's not a difference in what he who he is and what he cares about. And so just like there's rules for priests in the Old Testament, there's also rules for pastors in the New Testament, right? Just read 1 Timothy. So anyhow, okay. 46 is um, 
we get this uh, guy who's already shown up a couple times, um, but we we get this prince who shows up. And again, I just want to point out that um, you have Jesus here, right? That the prince is giving gifts out. Um, so just look at verse 16. Uh, right. That thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. I mean, that sounds just like Paul, right? When he talks about the the son sharing his inheritance with us, right? So again, we have Jesus here in the temple, right? Um, giving out God's God's gifts, and the prince sits on the throne, right? So Jesus is. This is kind of a funny thing in the Bible. Jesus is sometimes portrayed as the king and sometimes as the prince, right? So sometimes he's the king, sometimes he's the king's son, sometimes the father is the king. Anyway, um, the Bible mixes metaphors all the time, so that's just how it goes. Okay, in 47, we have the healing waters, right? And so this is that water feature I was talking about in the temple. Um, So he goes to the... Uh, the door of the temple and water is flowing from under the threshold of the temple, right? So there's just water coming out from the entrance of the temple. And um, it's uh, this is very much Edenic, right? And the, the rivers that flow out of Eden, right? The uh, From the threshold of the temple toward the east for the front of the temple faced east, the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. It brought me out by he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured one thousand cubits. He brought me right there's another multiple of ten. Brought me through the water, the water came up to my ankles, and again measured one thousand. And brought me through the waters, and the water came up to my knees. And he keeps going, and gets deeper and deeper and deeper as he uh, he, he walks along. And then it reaches this uh, sea, right? Uh, he goes down the valley, and it enters the sea. That's verse 8. When it reaches the sea, the waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. Right? There will be a great multitude of fish. Right? This is all... A recreation, right? This is all Genesis one all over again. So you have the the place where the waters of life come from, the streams of living water. When Jesus talks about the streams of living water, this is what he's talking about. The place where those come from is the temple that's established in the new heavens and the new earth, right? And these are baptismal waters, of course, right? How can they not be? Because these are the the waters of life, right? Drink of me and you'll never thirst again. Right? So again, this is these are Jesus waters flowing out of his temple. Okay. The well that doesn't run dry. All right. Um, any 48 has to do with the division of the land, which has to do with the dominion over the whole earth. Anyone have any that's um, those are some select passages here. The whole thing is great. And um Man, it was funny. I was talking to uh, someone who's um, a fairly new Christian recently, and they, they've been reading through the Bible, and they were like, they got to Ezekiel's temple, and they they were like, I've tracked with everything up in the Bible. And then, 
You know what I did not understand, though? Any of that Ezekiel's temple stuff. That didn't make any sense. <laughs> and uh, I was like, that's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. <laughs> they were like, what? <laughs> so, um, anyway. So, any questions on Ezekiel's temple? Could be wrong. I could be confusing it with a different part. Where God tells Ezekiel that if anyone doesn't obey or repent or something, that to to remind them about the temple. Um, I don't recall that. Off the top of my head, I'm not. I'm not saying it's not there. Very possibly, I just don't re- remember. I, 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 seems like I read that, and there could have been something else that I. Yeah. Read. Contrary to popular belief, I do not have all the Bible memorized. Unfortunately, <laughs> that would be good, but I don't. So, um, okay, we don't have time really to start Lamentations, but what I will do is tell you kind of where we're going from here in our Bible study. So maybe you'll hate me for this. Uh, Maybe you won't. But I think we're still going to spend a little bit more time in the Old Testament. And I'll show you the reason why. Um, Because, so I start, as as you all know, I started this Bible study on Old Testament history kind of just going through, well, it's Bible history, started going through the whole Old Testament, starting back in when I when I arrived at Beautiful Savior three and a half years ago or something like that. And we're still going through the Old Testament. But the Old Testament's pretty big, so, you know, I feel okay about that. Um, we have gone through, if you kind of remember the broader structure of that, in the divided kingdom... We've gone through Israel's uh, kings, and then we did Israel's prophets, and then we did Judah's kings and Judah's prophets. And Ezekiel was the last of Judah's prophets, um, pre-exilic, right? So um, pre-exile, we've done all the prophets. There are still some uh, post exile prophets we need to do right so we need to finish those and um then there's a couple little things that we need to circle back and pick up on because i realized well i'm going to basically have gone through every book of the old testament i should just do all of them so then over the course of four years or whatever we'll have gone through the entire old testament so this is where we're going forward um the next thing we're going to do is lamentations And Lamentations, I should have done earlier. Lamentations is an appendix to the book of Jeremiah. And I should have done it right after Jeremiah. I just didn't think about it. So we're going to circle back and hit Lamentations first because we already did Jeremiah. And before we get out of the pre-exile kings or pre-exile prophets of Judah, we're going to hit Lamentations. But then we have the uh, kind of post-exile prophets of 
and you can see with Ezekiel, we've already kind of been moving into post-exile prophets because he is in Babylon during the siege. Um, but we got next. We got. Uh, I'll just tell you. I'm not going to write them all on the board. It doesn't really matter. But um, we got to do Nahum and Daniel, which are post-exile Israel prophets, and then the post-exile Judah prophets on the Judah side are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So we'll hit those, and then um, we also have to circle back around after that and hit the post-exilic history. So the history books that come after. Uh, first and second chronicles right so that's ezra nehemiah and esther which has to do with the rebuilding of the temple okay and then the final book which we never covered was job and job is um not dated so um that's why we ended up never covering them because we were kind of going chronologically but we'll do job last and then we'll talk about when he might be when we do that um, so that will get us through the whole Old Testament. So we got um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten books left to do. Now, not all of them are going to take as long as Ezekiel. I think Lamentations I can do in one week, right? Same with a lot of those minor prophets. So um, give me a few more months in the Old Testament, and then we'll get to the New Testament, I promise. So that's where we're going. Any uh, questions or concerns? Yeah. Uh-huh. It was something that kind of, you know, kind of relates to some of the things that, you know. That, that so what you're telling me is there was literally water coming from the threshold of the church. Right, yeah. Okay, very cool. <laughs> All right, let's, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that our worship today may be in spirit and in truth. We thank you for giving us this church and for giving us your word and for giving us all the gifts that you bring to us today from your holy place, from your temple. We pray that you would continue to give these to us and not take them from us. We pray all of this through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.